Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today, Gerald Buschelt. Hi, Jerry. Hey, how are you, Nabil? I'm well, hope you're doing well too. Jerry is the Chief Information Security Officer for LogMeIn, responsible for the security, compliance, and technical privacy of LogMeIn's products and corporate assets. In his prior role, Jerry was the Chief Security Officer for Demandware, responsible for security, and was also the Acting Chief Privacy Officer and Data Protection Officer for Demandware's German subsidiary. Jerry was also a Principal Information Security Engineer at MITRE, with a focus on information assurance and identity management, and applying these technologies in the context of complex government environments. He worked closely with technical standards communities, business partners, and suppliers, as well as senior representatives of MITRE's government sponsors. Jerry is on the board of directors for the National Cybersecurity Alliance. He is also a member of the InfraGuard Member Alliance Boston Chapter Board of Directors, and the IT sector chief, as well as national subject matter expert for InfraGuard. Jerry volunteers as chairman of the Information Security Advisory Committee of Burlington, Massachusetts. Jerry also holds a master's of science degree in theoretical physics. So we have a lot to cover today. So Jerry, how did you get started with security? That's a long story. It's like it, uh, I was always interested in security uh, when, when I was little, which seems like ages ago at this point in time. But uh, uh, for real, I got started uh, during uh, my uh, college and university years where I was uh, really working in um, uh, university data centers, starting to play around with some stuff. And uh, and the first job that I ultimately held, professional job that I held, um, I ended up uh, being a pre-sales consultant for uh, Sun Microsystems, focusing on, interestingly enough, Solaris and Windows interoperability. Now, um, Solaris and Windows operated relatively well with each other, other until uh, Windows 2000 came along and uh, Microsoft started to play around with the NTPAC field in Active Directory, which uh, really started to cause some significant trouble for, for a couple of Unix providers. So um, that's where I started to dig a little bit deeper with what's going on there, just like some of the certificate stuff, some of the under, underlying stuff. And went then pretty uh, quickly into uh, from, from from those kind of more hardcore crypto authentication technologies into identity management. Uh, I spent quite some time with uh, uh, the Liberty Alliance and uh, Internet Identity Workshop. Um, we were at the time starting to drive uh, OpenID, uh, OAuth, OpenID Connect, and all those kind of good things. So a lot of the things around the identity management, uh, always with a, with a some foot back in the uh, uh, hardcore security kind of uh, space. Uh, when the sun set and Oracle uh, uh, took over, um, I was uh, moving over um, out of that world into a government world. And at that time, uh, I was working for MITRE. Um, MITRE is a uh, um, government think tank, uh, for lack of a better term. And um, they were looking in particular for identity and um, what was then new cybersecurity people. 
So um, I felt right at ease as I was uh, uh, going in there. And it's like um, I worked on a couple of interesting acquisition projects and, and other initiatives within MITRE uh, for, for the federal government. Uh, and that obviously dragged me very, very deep into security on a number of different perspectives. Um, mission was awesome. The people were great to work with. Um, the only thing that was somewhat annoying was that if it was not an urgency, it was glacially slow because it's government work. And uh, at that time, I was uh, as excited as I was about um, working on what I was working on. Um, I was looking, still looking for a little bit more action. So I came in Demandware. Demandware was a mature startup at the time. They were looking, it just went public at the time. Uh, and we're looking for someone to organize the security and compliance um, space. So um, I went in there as uh, essentially security um, security person number one and was then chartered to build out that kind of program. It went great. It's like we really built, I think, feel what I feel a, a pretty decent um, uh, overall security program based on the resources we had and the kind of uh, strategic direction of the company. But um, uh, it, um, it, it uh, kind of like culminated in Salesforce acquiring Demandware. And um, obviously, the team needed to be integrated into the larger Salesforce uh, um, security and infrastructure. So I helped doing that. But uh, by the time I was done, my job was kind of over. So um, I was happy uh, to find in the meantime, log me in, who were in a very interesting position after um, merging with the Citrix uh, GetGo business unit and really uh, suddenly coming together as a very large company with a established security team, but um, a couple of different focuses and uh, characters and personalities. So from that perspective, it was really uh, putting together a program that was appropriate for the size of company that logged me in became literally overnight and uh, make sure that we were meeting the overall requirements that uh, the board and the executive team set out for us. So that's where I'm at right now. I truly love talking to people and understanding their journey and how it molded them to get to where they are today. And it's so unique for everybody, which is why it's so fascinating. Uh, you yourself, for example, have very hands-on experience in various different roles, ranging from actual consulting to pre-sales to actual deep dive technical work. And of course, your education happens to be in theoretical physics as well. So you have some of that science and engineering uh, mindset as well to go along with your professional career and experience. How would you say your, your journey so far and the various experiences that you've had on the technical side help you today in the role of a CISO? Oh boy, that's, that's a difficult question. Uh, I, would, I would say that um, what I always draw is, I mean, physics in and by itself is obviously quite useless for most of the stuff that I'm doing today. Uh, <laughs> although I shouldn't really be saying that because if you start to look into uh, uh, quantum computing or quantum cryptography, understanding mm -hmm. what the quantum entanglement is and why it can be used to uh, create uh, fairly secure channels that are pretty much unbreakable unless you do side channel attacks, that's, that's kind of stuff that's useful. It's my understanding crypto in general. Um, yeah, you, you do want to have a somewhat solid background in, uh, in math, or at least a rudimentary background in math in order to understand some of the uh, theoretical underpinnings of uh, factorization and uh, some of the other more advanced kind of stuff. So, so while it, none of that really prepared me for what I'm doing today, um, what it did do is give me a, ba uh, a basic framework and at the same time also make it possible for me to um, really apply scientific method in, in meaningful ways. And so it's like take large problems, dissect them into smaller problems, solve those one at a time, 
in a uh, in a, in a uh, goal oriented kind of fashion. Because I mean, it's like if you want to do anything in, in science, that's that's what you essentially have to do, and be uh, essentially really fact based and make sure that um, that whatever whatever your hypothesis is, you you uh, can keep it in such a way that you can either that you can falsify it. Because otherwise, as we know, it's not really science. So working on on those kind of premises uh, from uh, uh, from a security perspective, I feel gets you a long way towards solving a lot of the technical challenges that, you, uh, that you'd be facing. Um, what those things do not necessarily do is help you with the people and process kind of parts, and that's where a couple of other experiences come in. So, for example, being able uh, or having been exposed to a pre-sales environment or sales environment and really working actively with customers definitely gives you a different appreciation of what the customers need, what the customers want, what their experiences are, and, and why they are d- doing certain things. So that personal relationship to uh, someone who is uh, sitting across from you, you need to achieve their their own goals. And the empathy that you need to develop in order to support that is, is something that, that definitely helped me uh, in my uh, career overall. No, that's very helpful and interesting to hear. Well, I know we talked about this before when you started at Demandware, you were really a security team of one person and it was you and that's how you started and grew and evolved the security program. Can you share with us some of the thought process that went behind what you were doing to grow the program and how you determined what areas to focus on first? Sure, absolutely. Um, the, the key element is like when coming when coming in into any kind of environment uh, and trying to build security programs or trying to understand what's going on is really that part trying to understand and listen. Um, at the end of the day, we're not doing security for security's sake or because it's cool or awesome or because somebody else told us to. Uh, we're doing security in a commercial setting or actually in any, any setting um, for a purpose. We want to support the business. We want to drive more business. We want to grow the company. We want to uh, create a um, reputation of uh, trustworthiness, whatever it is, right? So fully understanding what the business motivators are for a particular company uh, or organization as you enter as security employee number one, effectively, is is really, cre- is really key. It's like you really need to uh, embrace um, what what the what the corporate uh, or what the organizational goals are, what the mission is, uh, what are the short-term, long-term kind of uh, objectives that uh, that the organization wants to uh, achieve, and then you really need to uh, develop your own strategy around that. So, um, for example, for the manware, one of the key elements, the company the company just went public a few months prior to me joining, and uh, as part of that. Um, there were there were a few um, obligations starting to come together around um, uh, Oxley, obviously, but uh, specifically also around the idea of uh, providing uh, uh, SOC two reports, so service organization control reports, um, to uh, to the customers. Um, that was an urgent need. It's like there were literally contracts written uh, that that this would be happening. So obviously, uh, the first order of business at that point in time was to make sure that um, we really we're able to fulfill those kind of contractual obligations that we had vis-a-vis uh, our various customers. Um, how do you start this? Well, it's like you, you take a look at what you got, and then you start to figure out, okay, what do I need? It's like I, I definitely need someone who can can help me in terms of organizing all the kind of uh, uh, compliance-related work and, and audit uh, enablement that needs to go into uh, such such a product. So that's where we started out with, right? So we, we organized this uh, along those lines. And then it's like, as you start to build out, 
and go, for example, through the process of uh, building out a, a SOC 2 report or an, uh, work towards an ISO certificate, et cetera, et cetera, you're starting to see where the gaps are, right? I mean, uh, organizations that are successful tend to have, always tend to have some, some general alignment from a security perspective. There's uh, no, I have yet to really meet uh, an engineer, architect, designer, or whatever you wanted that um, does not have, um, that does not have a clear uh, desire to deliver a top-notch product, and that includes security. So they, everyone d- tries to do their respective best to uh, to deliver a truly secure solution. Um, the issue is where the issue really comes into play, where you start building co- complex systems. Because as you as you look into those complex systems, everyone is trying to do the best of security that you can. But um, once you start to put things together, you end up being in a situation where you can uh, run into gaps between the underlying um, um, operating stack, uh, hypervisors, uh, between the application server stacks or what, what have you, the middleware kind of stack that, uh, that you would work with, or ultimately the, the applications, uh, the, the um, actual code that gets developed. So driving all those kind of things, looking at um, some stuff beyond the R&D environment, and then also it's like, what does it mean from an ops perspective? What does it mean from sometimes a human resource uh, perspective? I'm sure Twitter in these days, after the insider hack that we just uh, uh, were witnessing, mm-hmm. is definitely something where um, where you have to uh, where people are starting to realize that security goes well beyond uh, deploying a single type of product or uh, looking for the silver bullet on a single pane of glass uh, that uh, does 24-7 everything, um, those kind of things don't work. It's like, we know that. Um, you really need to look for, as you build out your program and start from the core, the, the core deliverables that you need to focus on first and look into what, what is it that, uh, that really rounds out those kind of gaps that you identify. Since you bring up Twitter, I have two follow-up questions. Um, oh first one, non-related to Twitter, but initially when you were working at Demandware and trying to align all these efforts and initiatives with various stakeholders, how different was it compared to today when you had to explain to the various stakeholders the importance and need for cybersecurity? Uh, Is it easier to do today given people have a better understanding or better appreciation for cybersecurity needs, or is it still the same from your perspective? Yes and no. It's like it's uh, on the one side, people definitely have uh, started to realize that uh, skimping out on security is something that will eventually get you into trouble. I think the key problem that still is in the room is the inability of humans in general to properly assess uh, likelihood of, uh, of uh, risky events. Right. The usual this would never happen here. It's like, are you kidding me? Um, kind of mentality is, is something that is really inane to, to human nature, I feel sometimes. And uh, we, we either overestimate uh, um, risk and, 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 uh, and, and likelihood uh, by orders of magnitude and say, oh my God, so we've got to prepare for the worst when the worst never really, really that never happens, it's like, or almost never happens. Um, while at the same time, uh, it's like we're, we're sometimes underestimating risk uh, enormously. It's like, this is such a black swan event that, that would never happen to us. Especially, it would not happen to us because they would always go after, after somebody bigger, more, more important, or what have you. So uh, from that perspective, I think it's like this, this kind of hard, this, this hard time people have with properly predicting likelihood is something that still gets in the way today. Uh, and it, it's important to to really figure out how you can positively influence. And I think uh, from that perspective, what 
I feel we have made some progress with is that a lot of security programs, at least some of the more mature ones today, are really focused on uh, um, driving this uh, from a risk-based perspective, right? So do some semi-quantitative or ideally quantitative risk, uh, risk analysis, the appropriate business impact analyses that you need, that need to go into those and uh, start, uh, start really charting out. It's like, where, where, where are you good? Where are you not so good? What, what are the overall risks to your program? And with, with those kind of things in mind, and then along with the alignment to um, the business strategies that I was talking about first, uh, I feel you have a much better chance now to um, be heard and like, be able to, to, to build security programs that are meaningful um, to all stakeholders. Um, it was funny as like we were on a call this morning and uh, I, somebody just brought up uh, an older dash that I really, really like. A good compromise is if uh, all sides are equally unhappy, right? Um, and I think that's really where, where we need to strive for. It's like uh, we, can't have, we cannot have perfect security that would be likely not supportive of uh, uh, corporate goals or would be too expensive um, or both. Um, but, and we, we cannot completely uh, ignore some of the risks and, and, and threats that we're seeing in today's environment. So it's like finding the right middle ground is I think the, the key challenge here. And, uh, like I said, it's like, I think, uh, with the, the tools that, um, risk-based analysis can give us, uh, today and how we, how we as an industry have embraced that, I think it's much easier to make some of those kind of calls. So to go back to the Twitter breach, uh, not digging into specifics of the breach itself, but you know we are aware now that it was related to insider threat and you know attackers getting access to internal systems to be able to um, cause the breach. I've talked about this multiple times on the podcast about how you can put as many technical controls as you would like. Um, ultimately, the people end up being the weakest link, and it's the human element that uh, that ultimately causes uh, many issues and challenges, uh, and that ends up being the weakest link. So the question really is, when you're trying to manage a large cybersecurity effort and program, how do you determine when you have found the right balance between technical controls and technologies that you're implementing, and also educating people and having the right level of trust associated with your internal resources? Jeez, that's a complicated question. And I, I would uh, answer it in a typical security way. It depends, right? I mean, it depends on your organization. It depends on the kind of technologies you can deploy. It depends a little bit on uh, the reason why things would go awry on the people side of the house. Um, one of the things that I like to really make sure it's distinguished between is uh, the uh, unintentional insider, somebody who just clicks something, oopsie, it's like I, I made a mistake. That was uh, what just happens around me kind of, uh, kind of person. The uh, complacent one, yeah, 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 those security people, it's like I, they, they always know better, but it's like I really know better. So it's like just, just leave me alone with this kind of uh, stuff. It's like so they, they kind of they, they don't, have, they don't have malicious intention, but they are – uh, still, um, for, for what reason ever, um, not necessarily working within the framework that uh, everyone agreed or that we agreed on uh, moving. And then obviously the last one is the malicious insider. And uh, I mean, the m malicious insider is uh, one of the hardest problems to solve, period. Uh, I'm sure that a lot of uh, militaries throughout history can uh, uh, tell many, many stories about that because, I mean, that's the classical kind of spy that gives away inside or, or, or sabotages things or, or, or what have you. 
And really finding that is incredibly hard because uh, you essentially have to go into the psychology of people and try to understand, do we, are we dealing with a disgruntled employee? Are we dealing with someone uh, that, for, for whatever reason, loses the loyalty to the, uh, to the company and then uh, uh, tries to either capitalize on this or has other motivations in terms of, uh, in terms of turning against the organization? Um, I kind of want to like leave this out, even though the, the Twitter thing was exactly that. I mean, it was what is it, two thousand dollars, right? I mean, it's it's hard. It's 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 really a hard uh, a hard problem to solve. And I feel it's like, how do you to come back to your question? How do you find out what what the right level of um, technical and sort uh, um, of security awareness and monitoring and and, and whatnot controls are? It really depends on how you define your threat profile and what you want to protect against. If you really truly want to protect, uh, protect against a motivated uh, attacker with um, sufficient funds and uh, a deep insight into how your organization works, like a nation state organized nice crime kind of actor, you have to spend a lot of money on tools, a lot of uh, effort on um, developing proper processes. and. Most importantly, uh, you have to spend a lot of effort on uh, training your employees, uh, but also uh, checking checking their uh, activity and intentions and uh, running baseline analysis and effectively doing background checks and figuring out what their what their true motivated uh, motivations are. Um, that is incredibly hard, and that goes way beyond what uh, most uh, small and medium businesses would ever uh, consider, and uh, even for larger enterprises and, and governments, it can be it can, it can be quite difficult to defend against that. So I was like, I think building out your uh, your threat landscape, uh, build, uh, trying to understand who the threat actors are that are that you want to protect yourself against, that should be uh, the input into uh, what kind of control uh, mechanisms you want to put in place on people, on process, and on technology. And um, there's unfortunately not a single answer to this. Because it is very contextual, but um, it's like after after you go through this, I think most people will be coming out with a pretty good solution around that. And I couldn't agree with you more that you know truly getting into understanding the intent of the actor that performed a certain action is challenging because it requires really understanding the psychology of the person and what their true intentions were. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on whether a breach like what happened at Twitter will now highlight the need and the importance for not only testing your external facing assets and external facing software, but also that if you have administrative tools and software that you're creating that's being used internally only, you still have to apply security principles to them, you know, making sure there's audit logging, making sure there's multi-factor authentication, making sure there's proper authentication and authorization checks, et cetera. Because often we talk to people who are leaders in the security space and they say, well, I'm only focusing on my external facing things first, the internal stuff I'm not going to look at right now. Do you think this is going to change that frame of thought? Well, I could almost, I'm almost tempted to ask you back what's internal, right? It's like there is nothing like internal left, to be honest with you. I mean, especially in this day and age, if we look around how we're, we're working uh, during the, the various lockdowns and the, the, uh, the various restrictions that, that we have in place and uh, how most of, uh, most, of, most of the tech companies, at least, have organized uh, themselves, um, we're, we have 4,000 offices at Log Me In right now, every single home office, right? Um, there, there is really not an internal network uh, just uh, worthy of speaking that um, would be providing an adequate level of protection for what's going on. 
people have to be able to connect from from uh, from from anywhere at any given point in time. Uh, and uh, going back to a uh, well, you have to you have to go full tunnel VPN for everything you do. Um, well, let's just say it like this: It's like I think in March, some people that thought that this was the best solution for everything have seen the limits of uh, the scalability limits of uh, of that kind of approach. And I think companies that have been um, more aggressive in terms of adopting SaaS and zero trust kind of uh, approaches, uh, beyond corp kind of approaches, have had a somewhat easier time to adjust their business processes to um, a rapidly changing environment. And it doesn't have to be work from home or lockdowns. It can be really anything. Uh, I feel that um, if as, as long as you rely on the special privilege associated with the presence on a particular network or physical presence in a particular area, um, your scalability and your agility really suffers a lot. So I think what is the right approach to solving any of, uh, of those kind of problems is to, to really treat every kind of network as a hostile network. Um, there is no inside protection. Obviously, it's like you have firewalls around your environment and you don't let everybody uh, try to uh, run NMAP or ZMAP across your internal infrastructure. And that's a good thing, right? But it, it only slows down the adversary. And if you think about how appropriate kind of protection against adversarial activity looks like, um, you want to you want to make sure that the adversary creates enough noise so that your sensors and tools and uh, SecOps teams are capable of detecting them and then eradicating them. So uh, just relying on the firewall as the only way uh, to 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 uh, protect yourself and then say, well, internally, if we have a couple of criticals, who cares? Um, that that's a dangerous and slippery slope because uh, at the end of the day, if somebody does uh, sneak through the front door or the side door, and then establishes a, a beachhead within within your perimeter, um, lateral movement becomes incredibly easy, and uh, we all know what, where that ends, and that's usually in tears. So yeah, I totally agree with you. There there is no internal network that uh, um, that is special. Um, as soon as you have anyone on those kind of networks, you end up being, or any system really on a network, you, you have to consider that the malicious actor may be coming in through that as well. And you have to rely on, um, on, the, on access controls, identity management um, as, as a first line of defense uh, and the, the most important control set that you really have in order to figure out what's going on. I think it's critical that leaders in cybersecurity today really understand that the line between internal and external assets has really been blurred over time, especially with, uh, you know, connectivity and also mobility. You know, people are bringing their mobile devices home, laptops home. They have access to VPN on their tablets and smartphones, etc. And that line has really gotten blurred. So understanding that and accepting that will only be more beneficial in the long term for any organization. And I think leaders need to really critically think about how they're going to approach uh, this change. I agree. So Jerry, uh, if you had a time machine and could go back to when you first became a CISO with all the knowledge and experience that you have today, what advice would you give the younger self? And uh, would you do anything differently? I would definitely remind myself that communication starts with listening. I would definitely remind myself that context matters a lot and uh, um, that that uh, building durable relationships with your stakeholders is the most important thing you can possibly do if you want to be successful in, in our, line of, our lines of business. Um, I feel I've always tried to try to achieve and work towards that goal. I probably would tell myself, Back then, some of the mistakes that uh, I may have, and maybe, uh, and maybe making throughout the uh, this my, my journey, 
I think fundamentally, I would not really change a lot, to be honest with you. But it's like just really focusing on those kind of things, uh, uh, collaboration, uh, empathy, listening, uh, I think is critically important because um, if you're dealing with something that everyone knows is important, but is really nasty and unpleasant to do, and that, that's what security is for a lot of people, this, this kind of uh, active engagement with people is critically important. So communication, collaboration, being able to empathize with different stakeholders and business leaders is key to your role. Can you help us define, in your own words, what is the role of a CISO within an organization? That is a very interesting question. And I guarantee you that a lot of organizations are going to give, be giving you a lot of different uh, answers to that. Which is why I'm interested in your version, too, yeah. because it does vary significantly. Yeah, it's like the way I've, I've, I've seen security, particularly in the context of SaaS companies, um, maybe high tech in general, um, is really when looking at when looking at the um, product gener- product creation and operation. Um, so the more operational kind of tasks, uh, I, I see security having something of a play in there, but it's not very pronounced. It's like if you look back at the uh, traditional three line of defense model, operational risk management and compliance, and then internal audit as the third line of defense. I feel security teams are much better um, positioned on the second and third line of defense versus like the operational one. Because um, you usually have in functioning companies, functioning organizations, you have people that know how to do their day-to-day business. You, you, you have people that know how to configure a router, uh, understand what a firewall looks like, um, know how to write code and run, it, uh, run this through all kinds of stuff. But provide, creating the framework for doing this in a very consistent uh, way that takes security considerations, risk, and uh, appropriate controls into, into play and, and then aligns that with the business strategy. I think that's where, where a lot of the gaps are. It's like those are the gaps that I was talking about in the beginning. Those do not necessarily come from, uh, uh, let me take over uh, the world and it's like I'm going to decide what, what gets uh, pushed out or what does not get pushed out. But it really goes back into um, providing guidance, advice, um, measuring uh, successful um, uh, how successful the security program is in a couple of leading and, uh, uh, indicators, hopefully not by the number of breaches. That's not a good indicator. Actually, it is, but it's not really good for you. Um, but it's like leading indicators uh, such as uh, um, how does the, the overall um, uh, deliver a service level uh, for, for uh, security defect mitigation look like, et cetera. I think those those kind of things are really where security teams can excel because they give you an insight about how the organization is performing as a whole, and they can provide the night uh, the right corrective to uh, uh, close those kind of gaps that we were talking about earlier. Thank you so much, Jerry. So to change tracks, and yes, pun intended, I know that you have a hobby that you're perpetually working on, and it's related to your love and passion for model trains. No can you share with us a little more uh, about your hobby? Oh, good Lord. Yeah, it's like, I mean, that, start, that literally started when, when I was a little boy. Then I got the first train set uh, from uh, then my grandfather, my late grandfather. And uh, I found it fascinating. It was kind of fun. Um, I, when I, while I was younger, it's like I kind of went back and forth with this. But at some point in time, I was like, me. Uh, who cares? Wrapped it up, uh, put it away somewhere in some bags and uh, never really looked at it until I had kids on my own. And suddenly they got interested. Hey, train set, that's kind of cool. I'm like, oh, wait a second. I still have some of those. 
So uh, we dug them out, um, put them back into action. Uh, again, it's like played around with this for a while, lost some interest. But uh, for some reason recently, just um, uh, the kids and I said, it's like, hey, why don't we just resurrect this? And this time it kind of like uh, took, a, took a life of its own. Uh, it's like it's, um, I don't know how many, how many uh, uh, yards of track I have I've put down at this point in time. It's multiple layers. It's, it's many, many trains. Um, it's fully... Um, uh, it's, I'm on my path. This, this is where the, the kind of like a turtle, the uh, everlasting perennial project comes in. I'm on my path to fully automating the traffic, so you have the sensors in the right places and the, uh, and the the digital equipment to like start and stop everything and switch throw switches and then something doesn't work and things crash and you have to start again. Uh, it's a uh, it's a good way of uh, killing an afternoon or an evening when uh, the weather is bad outside. And uh, you just want to hang out either by yourself or, or with a family and uh, try to build something. You know, I've noticed on YouTube after talking to you about this hobby earlier, that there are a lot of model train enthusiasts that have YouTube channels and they share their progress and their builds, etc. Is it possible in the future we might see you with a channel with your kids sharing progress and updates? Uh, it's like that. It's so, so far behind it's like uh, i want to have first i want to get to the mvp kind of version of it and i think I've, i feel i'm still quite quite some ways away but once the mvp version is in place it's like then i would never discount that awesome well thank you jerry i really appreciate you joining us today it was truly an honor to have you as a guest and you know i know we live in the same town so hopefully once uh, the lockdown and all of this things comes to an end Hopefully we can meet up and, and grab a drink. Yeah, I would love that. Absolutely. Thank you, Jerry. We'll talk soon. Thank you for having me, Nabil. It was, was a pleasure to be on the podcast. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agentofinfluence.